Welcome to this special edition of Daily Vet Life. We're bringing you short interview synopses of presentations from the 2021 AAEP convention. These special editions are brought to you by Zoetis. I'm Kim Brown, editor of Equal Management. In this episode, we're talking to Katie Seaball, DVM, diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons and American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation. She presented on non-surgical joint therapies. Dr. Seaball is a member of the equine sports medicine team at Colorado State University's Equine Orthopedic Research Center. She also has certification in equine chiropractic and rehabilitation modalities. Dr. Seaball's clinical focus is osteoarthritis and rehabilitation modalities. We are joined today by my co-host for this podcast, Dr. Bobby Cowles of Zoetis. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Seaball. Thank you so much for including me on this today. It's great to be here. Um, first, I'd like to also thank co-presenter um, Dr. Richard Markell. He was um, there with me in AEP as well as our virtual presentation. And so would like to just um, extend a thank you to him. Um, and secondly, a special thank you to Zoetis for sponsoring this. Um, this is particularly relevant in that they carry the product currently of ProStride, um, which is something that we discuss during this session. Um, but we do want to remind people that if you had registered for the AAP convention, you can still go on and listen to the entire presentation through the AAEP convention portal. So Dr. Seaball, um, can you please give us maybe some of the key points that you and Dr. Markell discussed during this AAP convention presentation? Certainly. Um, Predominantly, we focused our non-surgical therapy discussion on intra-articular options. Um, certainly, there are other um, things that we could consider, such as nutraceuticals or systemic therapies, but we really focused the majority of our discussion on intra-articular options. And of course, first and foremost for us was the discussion of intra-articular steroids, specifically corticosteroids. And there are really three options that rise to the top for us, and that includes triamcinolone, methylprednisolone acetate, and betamethasone. And really, we found that majority of people these days are using triamcinolone with a um, like kind of secondary portion, um, using depomedrol or methylprednisolone acetate and betamethasone. Dr. Markell, in particularly, almost solely uses uh, betamethasone. So we found that there was a wide range throughout the group. Um, the reason that triamcinolone continues to rise to the top is um, prior research had shown that it could be chondroprotective, meaning that it was um, actually protecting our cartilage when using it in joints. Whereas our depomedrol or methylprednisolone acetate was found to be harmful to cartilage in a study performed years ago. Um, it still remains as one of the steroids that we use. However, I think solely based on its um, longer duration of action. We also discussed uh, during the session the use of hyaluronic acid or hyaluronin. Majority of us still use it in combination with a corticosteroid and the products there's a number of products that are available. I think the top two tend to be um, high visc um, or high hyaluronic vet. And those, in our opinion, seem to increase the joint viscosity 
and also potentially improve the duration of action of our corticosteroid injections. There has been some literature that suggests otherwise, but the majority of people are still doing them in combination, especially Dr. Markell and myself. We did discuss briefly, which I think is an important point, whether or not to use antibiotics in our intraarticular corticosteroid injections. And for a long time, it was uh, pretty simple to add that, especially when performing these injections in the field setting. But recent research out of CSU has shown that even in our standard doses of maybe 125 milligrams of amikacin in a joint, that is found to be detrimental or detrimental to cartilage. And so the suggestion is potentially to move away from just um, including amikacin in every joint injection, or if you do include it to try and decrease your dosage um, to 62 milligrams or less, as that is less detrimental to our cartilage. Okay. Um, one aspect that we failed to discuss in our um, in-person discussion, but then did mention in our uh, virtual was the use of intraarticular adequan. For many years, that was in, um, utilized in a series of three treatments. And it was found that it, you needed to include an antibiotic with that therapy. I would say in my hands, I have reached for that much more in a systemic nature and probably have not used it intraarticularly in a number of years. Not to say that it isn't um, a viable treatment option, it's just that I think it's better utilized as a systemic um, supportive therapy than I think in intraarticular, especially considering now it's need for the inclusion of antibiotics and the potential detrimental effects of that. Part of the world's leading animal health company with a 70-year legacy, Zoetis Equine is committed to providing horse care products and services that veterinarians and their teams can count on. With trusted vaccines such as Corey-Q and Fluvax Innovator, leading diagnostics like the Staple Lab stall-side SAA blood test and the number one vet-trusted equine sedative, Dermosidan, and a portfolio of regenerative medicine devices that includes ProStride APS, Zoetis is always by your side. Be sure to follow Zoetis Equine on Facebook and Instagram today. Following that discussion of um, corticosteroids um, in the joint, which we still feel is an important treatment option, we would love to think that, um, and when I say we, I think veterinarians as a whole, but in particular Dr. Markell and myself, would think that our use of corticosteroids is hopefully decreasing in favor of biologics and other kind of more healing modalities. But there really is a um, uh, strength of corticosteroids in that it really will decrease our inflammation. And so frequently we may use that as a first round course, both as potentially a diagnostic option, but also to knock out our inflammatory cascade and cycle that's going on in that joint and then follow with something that's going to do more healing, such as our biologics. 
but there really isn't anything in our opinion that has as potent of an anti-inflammatory um, therapy as our intraarticular steroids. So from that, we moved on to discuss biologics and there's just, there's so many great options that are available um, for intraarticular biologic therapies. And many of them have become so easy to use stall side. Um, Prostride, um, as now owned by Zoetis, is a great option in that it is a stall site therapy. It's a single treatment. Um, and so it's very easy, especially for our ambulatory veterinarians, as long as they have the centrifuge to make a diagnosis and provide treatment at the same time. Um, it does contain IL-1-RA, which is um, a potent anti-inflammatory um, cytokine. And so it has um, a lot of potential for our joint um, synovitis or osteoarthritis. Um, IRAP, which more appropriately called autologous condition serum, is predominantly IL-1-RA, but is known to have many other cytokines contained with it. It's also a um, popular intraarticular biologic. This protocol, though, involves drawing blood into the, the tubes or the kits, allowing it to incubate for um, 18 to 24 hours, processing it so that you have your serum, and then performing typically a series of three injections into the joint of concern. And so certainly has um, a bit more steps involved than our um, prostrite option. Um, Platelet-rich plasmas was talked about quite a bit, and this has become a very popular therapy as well, in that it can be done stall site as well, meaning that there's kits um, that you can draw the blood into and uh, protocols in which you can process with a centrifuge uh, stall side and inject that same day. The human literature has a lot of support for platelet-rich plasma, and but they tend to use it quite a bit more because some of these other, in particular, IRAP is not used as well because there's some regulations about um, taking the blood products away uh, or out of sight of the patient in the um, in human medicine, and so. PRP is much more readily available in that they can do it right in the site of the patient and inject at that same time. One of the largest challenges with platelet-rich plasma is the variability that comes with it. So not only is there variability within patients, meaning that I could draw one kit now and another kit in an hour and find that there's a different platelet um, concentrations at the end of our um, processing, but also there's different kits that will process different, meaning there's different levels of concentration, anywhere from two to 10% or 10 times concentration, as well as there's kits that will have a low white blood cell count or a high white blood cell count. And we're still sorting out what all of this means and what the ideal um, concentration and white blood cell count is in our platelet-rich plasma therapies. And since 
many veterinarians use different techniques, we're finding that it's hard to collectively get results or um, make a consensus statement about PRP because there just is so much variability. That being said, there have been um, a lot of favorable reports for this product. Um, of course, we would be remiss if we did not include stem cells in this discussion of biologic therapies. Um, certainly is um, a frequently used biologic. Dr. Markell and myself both um, prefer bone marrow-derived mesenchymal stem cells, meaning we draw from bone marrow, either the sternum or the tubercoxae, um, and send that off to be processed and expanded into a, um, more stem cells and then utilize that to inject back into our joints. But there are other options. There's both allogenic options in which they may be amnion-based or um, uh, fetal blood-based or umbilical-based, excuse me, um, that are um, lyophilized and then can be reconstituted and, and utilized in an allogenic formulation. And there are other, continue to be options for fat-derived. Um, really, you can get stem cells from just about anything. Um, so there's a bit of variability that goes with that as well. And in my hands, I will say, I tend to prefer to use, utilize my stem cells more for soft tissue injuries and a little bit less for my um, joint injuries. The exception would be the stifle because there is um, or are so many soft tissue structures within the stifle that can benefit from that. Um, but for the most part, I've utilized other biologics for my um, interarticular um, or non-surgical joint therapies. I should also mention A2M, which is alpha-2 macroglobulin. This has started to make a, an appearance on both the human side and the equine side with some promise. Um, and the predominant, we think, mechanism of action is that it's a protease inhibitor, meaning it's kind of um, inhibits some of the degradatory aspects of inflammation and arthritis. Um, and this product has shown some promise, but I would say I have not utilized it myself um, and only know of anecdotal reports from colleagues. Um, so feel that there needs to be a little bit more research on that product to know when is the best time to utilize it. Um, another important topic that we discussed as we moved away from biologics was the use of polyacrylamide hydrogels. This has become very popular and there's really two formulations. And uh, one thing that I think is important to note is that these two formulations are quite different. Um, they have different um, structures. And so it's important to know what you're using um, and why you might be using it. Um, but it has become quite popular as a non-surgical joint therapy. And um, I will say I've been quite impressed with its effect on um, some of the cases I've used it on. I'm still in the stage where I'm using it, or tend to use it on um, joints that are no longer responding to some of my other therapies. Uh, but 
it has, I've talked to many veterinarians that are using it as kind of a core or maintenance therapy uh, with great success. I still feel that more research needs to be done on these products because our exact mechanism of action is still a little foggy, although we have um, these companies doing the research to try and clear that up. But um, I think there's a lot of potential with these products. It would just be nice to know a little bit more about their mechanisms of action. These polyacrylamide hydrogels do tend to stay either within the joint or within the joint capsule. And so there's, I have some anxiety about what the use of this long acting component might have on the joint long-term. And then lastly, we did talk a little bit about stenazolol. This is an anabolic steroid, um, which, and its use has been, uh, I think, increasing, or at least our exposure to it has been increasing over the last few years. There's no um, FDA-approved product in the United States. There are some compounded intraarticular products in the United States. And there is a specific intraarticular product in Europe. Um, this stenazolol, being an anabolic steroid, is prohibited in, in some of our elite-level um, competition. And so I think it needs to really be used with caution. But um, the idea behind it is that it would help um, increase our anabolic processes within the joint and hopefully help to heal. Um, whereas our typical corticosteroids are solely decreasing inflammation, um, but have no uh, propensity to actually heal in any lesions. So I think this too is a product that will be of um, interest over the next couple of years, exactly where its um, role will be for our non-surgical joint therapies. I think that really wraps up the, the hot topics for us. Um, you know, try, when we go back to corticosteroids, we did talk a little bit about dosing. I think for the majority of practitioners, we are still trying to stay pretty close to 20 milligrams of triamcinolone. Although the more we, the longer we go, the, I think the more careful we can be with that and its potential induction of laminitis. Um, and people are becoming more confident in our case selection and such when using those uh, corticosteroids. Um, I think that that oh, really kind of sums it up. Well, those were some great points and some good discussion topics that, that you and Dr. Markell covered. Um, Dr. Cowles, did you have any questions uh, for Dr. Seaball? Uh, no, I think you did a great job. The question I have for you is on the Depomedrol that you mentioned that was chondrodestructive. In that study, when it was done, there were a lot higher doses than what we're currently using or recommending along that line. So I was just wondering what your thoughts on that, where we're going with currently with the Depo. Um, I think that's a very valid question, and I will be honest, I don't have the paper right in front of me, so I don't have the doses right in front of me. Um, one of the concerns is that uh, we still see some horses that come through um, and are highly suspicious that we are 
in surgery can tell the difference between, let's say, a stifle that was in, that was treated with depo versus a stifle that was not. And so I think it's still a drug that we should use with caution in our high motion joints. And I will be honest, I still use it in my sacroiliac joint injections and occasionally in our my hawks, um, especially hawks that are um, pretty advanced or have advanced osteoarthritis. One of the other concerns with Depomedrol is that there was it was found to be taken up in other joints. So let's say we injected one fetlock, we could find concentrations of it in um, a distant fetlock um, that had not been injected. And so that too raises some concern that even though that dose is going to be quite low, is there a potential effect on those distant joints? So I do tend to try to avoid it in my younger horses for that reason. Um, but I will also throw the disclaimer out that that paper was done at CSU. And so it tends to be a mantra um, from those of us here at CSU um, repeating it over the years. Um, but I think there are cases that depo is appropriate, but I also think that we have many other options that are available uh, for intraarticular therapies, whether it's the other corticosteroids or the multiple biologics that are available. Well, thank you very no, much. Thank Dr. you. Thank you, Dr. Seaball. And I've got to say that after having visited down there and, and gone through some of the rehab uh, demonstrations that you all have done for veterinarians and seeing how far rehabilitation of horses has come just in my career, I'm really excited to see what we what we can see next coming out of some of this research on how we can better handle some of these horses. I'm excited about it. Um, I am as well. Of course, you know, I'm pretty passionate about that um, and really think it has changed how we look at some of our patients, or at least it has for me, um, of, you know, focusing on that whole horse. Um, and we did, Dr. Markell and I talked about that quite a bit as well. Um, you know, I think we're moving a bit away from just throwing steroids at some of our patients and finding that there's other ways or other things that we have to consider to get the whole horse functional. Um, but that being said, sometimes it, every horse needs a a nice dose of steroids. Well, and that's a good point. And we thank you very much, Dr. Seaball, for joining us today. And we thank Zoetis for sponsoring this series of 12 special podcasts that appear on the Daily Bet Life. And make sure you can listen to them on Equimanagement with a short article, or you can go to your favorite podcast network like iTunes and check all of these 12 issues out of these summaries from the 2021 AAEP convention. Thank you very much. And that's all for today. Thank you very much. 